0: Society in my experience is a is a, a game of invisible invisible passes that you either have or don't have. There are invisible tickets that let you in or keep you out. And I want I want to help children to 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 make their own tickets so that they can go wherever they want to go in life so that they don't feel held back. Welcome to
1: Rethinking Education, education's critical friend. Hello, friends, and welcome to what I'm going to describe as a special edition of the Rethinking Education podcast, episode nine, I believe. This episode is special for two reasons. The first is that, for the first time, I'm interviewing somebody I know really well. I'm incredibly excited to share this conversation with you. It's a conversation from which I learned a huge amount, even though I've probably had literally thousands of conversations with Kate. Perhaps the main thing I learned from this conversation was about world schooling What Kate describes as her Alice through the looking glass moment that led her to sell her house and move halfway across the world to set up her dream school. But perhaps most importantly on a personal level at least, (laughs) I learned how to make my phone go black and white. Which has absolutely changed my life. My technology addiction went from a 10 to about a 3 overnight. But the main reason this episode is special is that Kate is just one of the most extraordinary human beings I have ever had the privilege to know. And so this is going to be quite a long introduction by rethinking education standards because, well, there's just quite a lot to say. I first met Kate in an interview room in 2010. She had been hired by my head teacher who had worked with her at his previous school to put together a team of teachers to design and teach a Year 7 Learning to Learn curriculum. Thank goodness Kate appointed me to join her team of five teachers because from that day onwards, Learning to Learn became the central focus of my life for about the next 10 years. We were given the whole of Year 7 for five lessons a week to do with whatever we wanted. Five lessons a week, that's one-fifth of their time, like a day a week. And this was in a state comprehensive school in an area of high disadvantage, which had just been placed into special measures. It was immediately clear to me that this was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do something really bold and different. And so to capture the impact of what we were doing in the most rigorous way I could think of, I signed up to do a PhD and that turned out to be an eight year study because we followed four cohorts of students from year seven through to year 11 to GCSE, one control cohort and three learning to learn cohorts. To cut a long story short, those students went on to achieve the best set of results that that school had ever seen by some margin. And in particular, learning skills was beneficial for students from disadvantaged backgrounds who saw accelerated learning gains across the curriculum. At GCSE, the pupil premium gap closed by over 65% from one cohort to the next. Kate and I recently co-authored a book about the learning skills curriculum, this new approach to learning to learn that we developed at Seaview School. It's called Fear is the Mind Killer, Why Learning to Learn Deserves Lesson Time and How to Make It Work for Your Pupils. We don't really talk much about the book or about Learning to Learn in this interview because we've spoken about it at length on other people's podcasts and I'll put links to those in the the show notes if you're interested. But in what is fast becoming a time-honoured Rethinking Education podcast tradition, I will share some excerpts of reviews of the book Usually, I wouldn't feel comfortable reverse name-dropping like this, but since Kate co-authored the book, it seems appropriate to share with you some of the kind things that people have written about our book. Mary Myatt, the author of Back on Track, Fewer Things, Greater Depth, and the creator of the stunningly beautiful video-based teacher training website The Soak, wrote, I really enjoyed Fear is the Mind Killer. One of the most original pieces I've encountered in a long time, it elegantly sets out the case for learning to learn in a way that is both robust and fair. The measured balance of the arguments really makes the case stronger. Fear is the Mind Killer reclaims those important aspects of provision which bring learning alive, deepen understanding, and supports pupils to become learners in the deepest sense of the word. Highly recommended for everyone in education. Close quote. The next quote is from Mark Enser, the geography teacher, test columnist, and co author of Generative Learning in Action, among other very good books. Wrote As someone who has always been somewhat skeptical about the potential for learning to learn, I found this book an eye opening and refreshing read. It clearly acknowledges the criticisms of previous attempts to implement the teaching of learning skills, whilst also showing how it can be implemented successfully. As interest in metacognition and self regulation grows, this will be the handbook we turn to. Close quote. And if I may, I will quote from Dylan William at length, because Dylan does an excellent job of framing our book within the wider debate around knowledge and skills. As school systems around the world recognize that they are preparing their students for a world that no one can imagine, attention has, perhaps unsurprisingly, turned to whether or not it is possible to teach learners how to learn, and this has led to a rather polarized debate. On one side are those who argue that our traditional curriculum is unfit for the needs of today's learners and that we should instead focus on the so-called 21st century skills. At the other are those who provide mountains of evidence that such skills tend to be highly specific to particular subjects and that learners rarely transfer what they have learned in one subject area to another. The truth is that both sides are right about some things. Some of what we need our students to learn is highly specific to a subject there are also ideas that go across the whole curriculum. The challenge is to discover what those are and how they can be effectively incorporated into the curriculum. This is why Fear is the Mind Killer by James Mannion and Kate McAllister is so welcome. The book tells the story of the implementation of a learning to learn curriculum in an English secondary school and how that approach increased student achievement while at the same time closing the gap in achievement between students from more affluent and less affluent homes. More importantly, the story is told in sufficient detail that it provides a clear plan for how to implement such a curriculum elsewhere with honest discussions of the challenges and difficulties encountered. I don't know of any other book that provides such clear guidance on how to harness the common elements of learning across the curriculum, bringing greater coherence to pupils' experiences in school, while at the same time respecting the real differences between school subjects. Highly recommended. Close quote. Since we left Seaview, Kate and I have taken the learning skills approach out into a range of settings, from early years to universities, from schools in deprived areas to elite international colleges, from workplaces to refugee camps... Obviously, we adapt our work to meet the needs of different contexts, but the fundamental approach is the same. It's still early days, but it seems as though we may just have hit upon a recipe for how to help anyone, adult, teen or toddler, become a more confident, proactive, self-regulated learner and self-actualized or maybe self-actualizing human being. Our work in scaling up the approach in new and diverse contexts continues apace, but it is to the last of these settings, the world of refugee education, that I will now briefly turn. As you will no doubt recall, a few years ago, around 2014 or 2015, the refugee crisis hit the headlines in a really big way. As Kate mentions in our conversation, we referred to it as the refugee crisis in the UK and elsewhere in Europe. But that's actually quite misleading because the word crisis kind of implies that it's a short-lived thing. But actually, the astonishing, profoundly troubling reality is that the average time someone spends living in displacement is 17 years. Just think about that for a moment. 17 years from birth to to 17 for some people, or from age 10 to age 27, or 25 to 42. It's a life sentence. Anyway, in 2014, the European migrant crisis was dominating the news agenda like never before. And like many people, Kate found herself feeling frustrated, helpless and angry, throwing things at the telly. But unlike other people, Kate decided she was going to do something about it. In particular, she had what might seem at face value to be a pretty crazy idea. What would happen if you bought a double-decker bus and converted it into a school and then drove it into the middle of a refugee camp? That way you could provide a safe space where at least some of these displaced human beings could come together and learn from one another. As it turns out, you can buy a double-decker bus on eBay for about three grand. And so working with her friend Darren Abrahams, Kate crowdfunded some money and the school bus project was born. They bought this bus, they stuck some solar panels on the roof, kitted it out with a library and tables and chairs and throws and bunting, and drove it into the so-called jungle, the infamous refugee camp in Calais where Kate lived and worked for around the next six months, along with her young family. In 2016, the refugee camp at Calais was shut down. Kate and Darren realised that they needed to amplify their efforts, and so they set up an organisation known as Crisis Classroom, which has now trained thousands of volunteer educators to go into refugee camps all over Europe and work with people living in displacement. Last year... Kate decided to sell her house and to set out with her young daughter on what she planned to be a world tour of alternative education settings. Their second stop was to visit a so-called world school in the Dominican Republic in the Caribbean and we'll hear more about world schooling in the conversation. And then of course a year or so ago Covid hit and so they got stuck there and As it transpired, Kate, in around September, decided to open her dream school in the middle of a pandemic, (laughs) where most of the other schools in the world are closed, like you do. As I said earlier, Kate is one of the most incredible people you're ever likely to meet. When we spoke a few weeks ago, Kate was two weeks away from opening this school. It has now been open for two weeks, And I can bring you the entirely uplifting and life-affirming news that it is going incredibly well. I'm just going to share with you a few comments that parents have sent to Kate. The first one says, My kids have had such a wonderful time. They're ready for it to be tomorrow already. They can't wait to go back. Thank you for all you've done to make this experience a reality. The next quote says, We couldn't have made a better choice for our littles. Thank you so much for what you've created here. They have already said they want to stay for the next session. And so they call it sessions, but it's basically a half term. And the third and final quote says, For the first time ever, both my kids said they were sad they didn't have school over the weekend. I mean, I don't think I ever said that as a child. Lol. I even heard, and then they mention another parent's kids say the same this morning. Bravo. Close quote. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not the kind of feedback I am used to seeing from the parents of school children. Obviously, it's still early days, but it looks a lot like Kate's dream school has hit the ground running and the future looks bright. If you're a parent or carer and you want to be able to say things like this about your kids, or if you're a teacher and you want to be able to make this happen for other people's kids, The Hive School is currently looking to take on both pupils and teachers for the next session starting next month. There are currently around 30 children at the Hive School, but they've got capacity for up to maybe around 100. So if you're interested in finding out more about World Schooling, or about the Hive School in particular, listen until the end when Kate will explain how to find out more about how you can get involved if you wish to. Okay. Okay. That is by far the longest introduction I have ever done and probably ever will do. But like I say, Kate is not your average guest. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Kate McAllister, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast.
0: Thank you very much for having me on. I'm a little bit nervous and very excited to be here talking to you like this.
1: Likewise, and it's, um, it's, it's lovely that you feel a little bit nervous because we know each other so well, but this is obviously a slightly weird situation because we're having a recorded conversation. Um, but I think it's going to be really interesting. So let's start with the fact that you are in the Dominican Republic. This seems to be the most obvious place to start and that you're about to open a school in the next two weeks. Is it happening?
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Very soon.
1: So what's going on? Can you, um, I mean, obviously I know a little bit about this, but for the benefit of listeners, what has led you to open a school in the Dominican Republic? And what is some of your thinking around, um, about what this school is going to be like?
0: Okay. So I, this wasn't my first plan when I came to Dominican Republic. I came here um to to go on what i called one big learning journey i set off with my daughter and i wanted to learn about different environments for learning people who were doing schooling in a different way alternative education if you like and i had i guess i got as far with understanding as i could from from books and from talking to people from my safe little life in the uk And I felt that I needed to really understand the people who are educating their children differently, the people who are opening schools in interesting places on the planet. And I really wanted to go and meet them. So I set off kind of on a research journey to see if I were going to build my dream school, which was a kind of little idea somewhere buried in the back of my mind that I think all teachers do this. Like if I could, if I ruled the world, if I could, open my own school if I could do it all differently how different would it be and it was kind of a thought experiment that mushroomed out of all control which I think if you know me you'll realize is a a recurring theme in my life um so I came to Dominican Republic to meet somebody who had opened something called the world school and it was about as minimal um it was like the the least the least intervention from adults around learning that I could envisage. So I thought I'll come and see what is the smallest version and then I will work my way around the world looking at other versions. And then two weeks after we arrived here, COVID followed us and the world kind of went crazy and we stayed here. I suppose it just kind of dawned on me that anywhere would be the right place to build my dream school because it was going to come from me and it was going to come from the people around me. And that a dream school is a dream school because you build it for the context and the people who are there and for what they want to learn and what they want to achieve. So the dream school here wouldn't be the same as a dream school in Mexico or in Australia or in Brentwood and Essex, they would always be different. And so really the best way to understand what it takes to build a dream school is to build a dream school. So we just kind of started and I've, it, there's a there's a method inside the madness that I've been developing for about five years now. When I finished working with you um, in a secondary school in the UK, I went off. Um, I got sidetracked while we were supposed to be setting up a business and started to do education in uh, refugee camps and to take to take our model of learning of looking at um the learning skills and the relationships and individuals as learners rather than content so we looked at learning from the human perspective rather than the content perspective and i i took that model and, and grew it again and so that's that's what's led me to be here is looking at looking at how you can create environments where people can learn effectively wherever they are so even if they're a refugee on the move, if they, have, if they have the skills and the relationships they need to keep learning, then they can do so. And even if you are in the middle of the jungle in the Dominican Republic, in the middle of a global pandemic, you can also use that method to build a school. You can build a learning environment out of the people and the knowledge and the context. And that's what I'm doing here.
1: Hmm. And so you say that it's different in different contexts, but there is also this sort of this unifying idea in this idea. So it's called a hive school that you've opened. Can you explain a little bit about why it's called a hive school? And there's this wider movement called the human hive that you've been that you've been involved with. What's that all about?
0: Uh, What's that all about? It's about making it easy for people to contribute something meaningful to something bigger than they are. So no one person can have all of the answers for everybody. Um, But everybody has some answers that they can share with others. And in the same way that bees all contribute to making honey that everybody can share, human beings can, can contribute skills, knowledge, expertise, experiences, mentorship to new knowledge that is created and shared and new experiences that can be shared and so the human hive is is a way for people to get involved for people to bring the skills knowledge expertise experiences that they already have that they have in abundance that they have to spare and and to lend them or to share them with somebody else so that they can learn from them learn alongside them so the whole philosophy is with not for it's about Um, instead of designing solutions for people, you involve people in designing solutions for themselves. And that's what the human hive does. And hive school is just a miniature version of that where we're all learning in response to our context and we're learning in response to where we want to go in life and we're all helping one another with that process. So the curriculum is designed with the children not for the children so it grows with us
1: Mm. this is fascinating stuff and so Um, I sort of, I get the feeling that this conversation is going to go around in one big circle because we're sort of, the whole idea of this podcast is rethinking education and it ends with solutions to the challenges that we face and there's no better example of somebody who's rethinking education than somebody who is, you know, building a school from first principles and not just sort of starting with an imported curriculum, say. So I feel like we're going to probably end with this. But I think at the start of this conversation, it would be interesting just to hear a little bit more about, you say that it's going to be different, the high school model is different in different situations. What does the current high school situation look like in the Dominican Republic? And what what sort of shape is this school taking? And who are these children that you're going to be working with? in a very short, is it two or three weeks time that it opens?
0: Yeah, we open on the 11th of January. So gosh, um, so a lot of my thinking and a lot of the things that I am passionate about are involved bringing people together who wouldn't normally easily meet and creating situations where they can learn from one another and with one another and take those ideas back into their own lives. So everything is about cross pollination for me of ideas, habits. Um, you know, it's a recurring theme in everything that I do. And so this school, the Hive School in Cabrera, in Dominican Republic, has um, three very different intakes. So we have local Dominican and Haitian children, many of whom are live really challenging lives. And, and it's a whole. It's a whole new experience for me. There's no electricity, there's no running water, um, there's not enough clothing and food to go around. So it's almost like being back in the refugee camps, but it's not, this is real life. A, a full life can be lived out in this way here. And then we have the children of um, pretty you know, wealthy, comparatively, international children, like my children. So international people who've come to live here, to work here, Who do different things their children are coming to high school as well and then we have the world schoolers and these are the families that i came here to meet um and they travel the world homeschooling dipping in and out of different homeschooling um, curricula online using their own making it up as they go along and they travel and so they dip in and out of these different education opportunities they just create opportunities for learning wherever they go. And so the Hive School is going to be a stop on many of their journeys. And so we bring all of these different children together who've had very different life experiences. And and we work on, on challenges, on learning challenges together. And the learning challenges all have a purpose. They're built around the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so as we are looking at these global challenges, we're looking at them through the lenses of very different personal experiences and learning a huge amount about how other people live and why they make the choices that they make and why they make the decisions that they make and how the world works for different kinds of people. And so it's a it's an exaggerated form of cross-pollination. It's it's kind of very deliberate to bring these very different types of people together. And the teachers and the volunteers who are coming are also deliberately very different types of people so that we can so that we can learn much more about one another by living alongside one another while we
1: Absolutely incredible. So, one thing that I think people might be interested to hear a bit more about before we move on is this idea of the world schoolers. This is something that there's a whole sort of community of people who I just had no idea about. And so, my rudimentary understanding is that you were going to go to the DR to look at this world school. And this is a school that moves around the world. And so, as I understand it, the plan was that it was going to be in the Dominican Republic for a while. And then it was going to move to the Pyrenees, say. And then it was mm-hmm. going to move to somewhere else on a different continent again. And that just sounds like ridiculously impractical. Right? <laughs> like, we're going to set up a school and then we're going to move to a different continent. And it will sort of be the same organization, but obviously it will be different. Like, what is going on with this world schooling movement, this community of people? Who are these people?
0: but that's the fascinating thing they're all really different um so i found out about world schooling a friend of mine said oh you should join world schoolers on facebook and i was like world hoolers what and it was like that moment when alice goes through the looking glass i was like this is the parallel universe that i've sensed my entire life that i've dreamed of where people are just doing that stuff right they're just living that unbelievably free existence with their children um and they have jobs and they're earning money and they're doing fascinating things um and they're taking their children along for the ride and they're not missing out on anything and they're not falling behind anyone and this is exactly this is exactly what i i didn't even know i was looking for it until i found it and so i kind of that was it i'd gone through the looking glass and from there i just kept looking how do, how do these families make it work? How do they earn their money? How do they travel? Um, how do they make sure that their kids grow up uh, well-rounded? How do they, all of those kind of questions that we have in the back of our mind as parents and as educators, when we've grown up in a standardized system, right? That you have to be in it in order to do well in it. And if you stay outside of it, then that's dangerous. It's dangerous out there, don't go out there. Um, and so, World schoolers are, are families who've, who've stepped outside and realized it's not dangerous. Um, there aren't monsters out there. Actually, there's a whole world of other families. And they they come together and they connect and they do projects together. And then they break apart and they go off and do other things. And And over the course of a lifetime, over the course of the same 12 years that you would have if you put your child through the same school for 12 years, you build up. You build up a curriculum of experiences and knowledge and skills that you go through life with. It's just a very different way of viewing what an education could be and, and should be, I guess. Um, so what, just, they're just people, they're families who like to travel and learn together.
1: And so these are not necessarily, you know, families who are wealthy enough to opt out. You're saying these are like working families who I presume they've got jobs like, you know, you're an accountant or a web designer, where as long as you've got an Internet connection, you can work wherever you are. Is that the sort of people that we're talking about?
0: So there's a a term called digital nomad. And so they're people who who work online and they don't live anywhere. So I suppose... To a certain extent, I'm a digital nomad. I sold everything. I had to sell everything I had in order to be able to do this. <gasps> um, so so that's what I did. And other people have done the same. And so now they're, as Theresa May would say, citizens of nowhere. <laughs> um, they're citizens of everywhere. They, 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 they feel as if they belong everywhere and they go everywhere that they can. Yeah. But in a restricted form but um, I didn't know that when i when I came and how
1: big is this world schooling movement? How many people are on this Facebook group
0: uh ten ten more than ten thousand right and so there are people who do this full time so they're full time world schoolers um and they this is their whole lifestyle and then there are other families who do this um they're mostly homeschoolers and they sometimes travel. Um, so it's a very broad spectrum of people who look at the whole world of the classroom and every experience as a way of learning. So, you know, even people who do that, who go on educational trips with their kids at weekends, um, drop onto the spectrum of world schooler somewhere. It's not so different in reality.
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. They're just people, and they're living their lives, and they've got their troubles, but they've just got a different sets of problems because they've committed to a different way of life. But it, but as you say, like it seems to be this quite a vibrant community where you know this whole the the the, the whole sorry the the world school that you went to visit, you know, within a sort of week or two of it being announced, it was already oversubscribed. So there's there's like this this there's this constituency of people who are really keen to work in different ways. Um it's just incredible. Like I, I'm sure that many listeners wouldn't have known that this was a thing. So so it's just called world schooling, is it? If they want to find out more about this, it's a group on Facebook.
0: Yeah, if you just put world schooler and world schoolers into Facebook, you will find the communities. Um and there's world single parent world schoolers, there's there's lots of different um subgroups in there and and they share openly ideas for earning money places to travel the best insurance um it's that it's that parallel universe right where everybody's nice to each other and everybody helps everybody out um and it exists and you can just tap into it via facebook
1: So, as you know, in this in this podcast, um, it's about rethinking education, um, and that's where the conversation sort of ends up, where we think about what's good about education, what would we like to see more of, um, what challenges do you see, and that could be at the level of the system, at the level of different countries, at the level of classrooms or individual teachers or within the world schooling movement, say. Um and as us as individuals as well so that that's a quite a wide-ranging conversation where we think about problems and then potential solutions Um, but I like to start with the the guest to find out a little bit more about how is it that you came to to be living this life that you're living Um, and we sometimes joke I think that you gave me this line that just did somebody else say it that you got you know the work that you and I did was largely about self-regulation and uh, you got so good at self regulation that you regulated your way to a Caribbean island to set up a a school that's surrounded by mango trees and you know um surfboards and so on so um let 's take a step back, a big step back and go back to the beginning uh, and I want to find out a little bit more about your own childhood and your own experience of education and the journey that you've been on um so let 's start with with your experience of school um and we'll go from there
0: um well it's probably not going to be surprising that i i didn't have a particularly positive experience in my formal schooling um
1: why do you say that's not surprising
0: well i i think often often when you when well when i read books about people who've gone off and done things differently, or I've listened to podcasts with educators who are trying to shake things up a little bit, there's, um, there's always a little bit of themselves in what they're trying to achieve. And so often the system that they went through, they feel was missing something that could have helped them when they were eight or 11 or 15. Um, and It's only now that I look back on what I'm doing that I realize that applies to me too. So from as far back as play school, I remember not liking play school. I remember not liking having to sit down at the same time and in the same way as everybody else. And I remember not wanting to go. I didn't enjoy anything about primary school. And I actively disliked all of secondary school so um it was a very challenging my relationship to learning was very challenging um I wasn't very good at it and I didn't enjoy being in school wasn't there
1: some incident I remember you telling me a while ago about an incident where you weren't allowed to drink water or something what
0: was that oh I was- yes so a a prime infant school i think this was an infant school i got my first detention (laughs) yes i got my first detention I i had to stand in the corner facing the wall um for drinking water we had those i remember it so vividly these little um pyrex glass cups that had lines around them anyone else who went to school in the 70s will probably remember the same ones And you you had these uh, gold jugs that you filled up with water and you weren't allowed to drink water until you'd finished your food. And I have always liked drinking water. And so I would want to drink my water first and I would want to drink my water with. And if ever I forgot and drank my water, I would get in trouble. And then I started, I, I don't know if I did, did it deliberately or not, but I remember drinking a glass of water and being made to stand up and miss out on my lunch. And I must have been six or seven years old. So I remember that, like, why? What difference does it make? What order the food and the liquid go into my stomach? What difference can it possibly make?
1: That's a good question.
0: And so yeah and so i I think i 've always had that question in my head. What difference does this make? like what is the point of this? Um, and I still have that today. I ask myself that question um when i when i 'm examining my own personal habits and the order in which I do things um, and i look at I look at school in the same way, and that started age seven, and I think it stayed with me
1: mm. And so, what kind of schools are we? We're we talking about state comprehensive schools in Essex.
0: Yes. So I was born in East Ham, and then my parents moved to Romford, Gideon Park, which is just next door to so Romford. <laughs> still Romford. Um, and I went to a big Victorian primary school. I'm guessing it probably had two or three form entry, um, and it was one of those big East London red brick primary schools. Um, And it was strict and it had uh, wooden corridors that you got sent to the headmaster's office along um, for not sitting still or for wanting to talk to a boy All kinds of things, just challenging. Every single thing about it was challenging to me. My hair wouldn't lay flat. My tie was never straight. Um, I always wanted to talk to people. I always wanted to ask questions. I was curious and jumpy, and I had all of this energy in me, and I, I was aware that I didn't fit, that I couldn't be good in the way they wanted me to be good. And so I have that, uh, like, it's making my belly feel uncomfortable now talking to you about it.
1: Wow. Wow.
0: Making me feel emotional now as a nearly 50-year-old woman.
1: Yeah, well, this is often what people say, that these experiences that they have of school... Um, and the, your sense of not fitting into this mould that they wanted you to fit into, it stays with you for life. And and you ended up sort of voting with your feet, didn't you? And you didn't really go to school much And was it year 10 that you sort of just didn't really go at all? Yeah,
0: year nine. By the time I got to there, I'd had, um, I got to secondary school, nothing much had changed for me. I got glasses. That helped slightly. So I'd also not been able to see anything for the first 11 years of my life. And I think that also had an impact. Um, but the, the damage I think was done by then. So um, by the time I got to about 14, I just didn't bother going in. The teachers I think were quite pleased that I didn't go in. Um, nobody ever came looking for me as I recall. My physics teacher, when I arrived, she would kind of say, what mood are you in today, McAllister? And we would sort of have a silent agreement that I'd just wander off again and that she wouldn't come looking for me and that everybody's life would be easier like that. And so that kind of just... That grew into really not not turning up for much at all.
1: Yes. Um, OK, and so... And and your in in your home life, um, was it were you getting? What were the messages around education that you were getting from home?
0: Well, my parents had both left school, so my dad left school before he sat his O levels. I think he might have been asked to leave as a teenager, as I recall. That's his story. Um, and my mum got a couple of CSes. Um, but education wasn't, they, they hadn't done well in school. They hadn't been successful at school and therefore, um, there wasn't much pressure on me to be successful. I never felt that there was much of an expectation that I would be successful at school. Um, I I don't remember it being a particularly big thing. I remember it being my parents being disappointed that I was difficult, but I also remember my dad that we were kind of connected by this shared disdain for being told what to do and learning things that we couldn't see the point of.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so you said that in a weird way, he was sort of proud of the fact that you, that you didn't really get very many GCSEs that he sort of thought it was funny in some way.
0: Yeah. What do you, I, I chip off the old block type of thing. The apple didn't fall from That's my girl. You know, that, that was there for sure. Or I certainly felt it. I don't know whether he intended it, um, but he said those things out loud, so I guess he kind of must have, right? Uh, and so that was there.
1: Yeah. So, so you weren't getting pro-education vibes from home, but, but, so what were the values that you were that you were growing up within? What What were the values that were considered to be important that you were getting from outside of school?
0: Be kind be useful, um, be truthful, be hardworking, get better, grow, make a difference, achieve more, have more. You know, one of Thatcher's children. Um, that was all in there. So if you're not going to go to school and do well, you need to get a job. So I had my first job. I, it was before. Uh, what's the next the, You get a national insurance card, don't you, when you're? 16 Mm. I didn't have one yet so I was working at 15 um so that was encouraged it was you know encouraged to, to work hard and gain skills and be multifaceted I think I remember that being a you know make sure you've got lots of strings to your bow I remember that being being an expression that was used you know you have to be a jack of all trades you may end up being a master of one or two but it's important to be able to do lots of uh, lots of things well so that you can always keep moving and doing and never get stuck and i think that's definitely stayed with me
1: so what i'm really interested to understand is that so so you had this really bad experience of school as a young person and you weren't getting pro education messages from home and uh, and you left school without many, much in the way of qualifications. Um, and then before, I don't know how long it took, but at some point you, so when you, when you trained to become a teacher, you went back to the school. The first placement that you were at was at the school. So how, how did that happen? How did you come to become a teacher to be wanting to be a part of the system that you didn't feel that had served you particularly well?
0: Um... So becoming a t- I was 20 so I'd left I'd left school at 15 just before my sixth, I'm summer born and I didn't get any GCSEs including English and maths so I got French and art like that was it and so um so I went out to work and um and I and I learned I learned the things that I needed as I as I went along. And I always knew that I didn't want to feel like, um, that I, I had an awareness of being an Essex girl. I had an awareness of being a school dropout. And I had an awareness that that was not viewed particularly well by society at that time there were lots of jokes around being an Essex girl and it just wasn't like I didn't I wasn't proud of myself um and I didn't want that feeling to last forever so I started figuring out what I could do differently that would get me from where I was to a place where I was happy to be and that I was proud could be proud of myself and so I just taught myself to do different things and got different jobs and work my way up and Wherever I was, I was looking at who was ahead of me and what what were they doing differently to me? What did they have that I didn't have? And then I would figure out how I could get that so that I could get to where they were and then I'd get beyond where they were. Um, and that took me all the way out of the UK and into Paris. And I started working there and then I became bilingual. And I got, I got married, um, but it didn't last very long. So at 27... I'd worked in lots of different industries, and done loads of different jobs. I was a single mom and I had to find a pragmatic solution to my predicament um, because I was still an unqualified Essex girl at the base of it and I needed to be better than that for my child. And so I thought, what can I do that's going to earn me enough money so that I can give my kid a good life and myself? And that's going to give me enough time to be a good mother. I want to be there for my child. And so being a teacher seemed like a really sensible solution. (laughs) And that's what took me into teaching. Um, And how I got into teaching with no qualifications is I just kind of turned up and joined the back of the queue and applied to university. And the first round. Was you had to? I wanted to do French. I wanted I, I could speak French, right? So I figured if I can speak French and I go back to England, then I'm I'm at an advantage, right? I've got a skill that most other people don't have, and that's an advantage. So that's that's a sensible choice, Kate. Become a French teacher because you'll be ahead of the ahead of the curve. And so I turned up, and I but there was a a test. You had to pass a test. Um, a written test and and an oral test to make sure your level of French was high enough. And I passed and I got through and I completed all of the forms. And then they rang me up one day and said, you you can't come to university, you don't have any qualifications, you don't have A-levels. You can't just turn up. Um, And I was devastated because I really wanted to go. I I set my heart on it now and I decided that I was gonna be the best French teacher the world had ever seen. And it was gonna be the perfect solution to my life predicament. And they were saying, oh no, you can't come in. You're not good enough. Um, And so that was really tough. So then I I rang them up again and I basically just begged them. Um, And I talked my way into it and I said, I will be the best student you've ever had. And I will work harder than anybody else. And I really, really need this. Please, will you let me in? And so they said, I'll tell you what we'll do. Instead of making you go away and do A-levels, we will let you do the first year of an education degree as an access course. And if you pass that, then you can join the degree that you want to do, which was a French degree plus QTS, all wrapped up in two years because I needed to earn money fast, right? I needed to be a teacher quickly, because I had a child to feed and, you know, life to live. So this was the, the, this is what I signed myself up for, and they and they let me in, and I worked very hard. And that first year of my education degree was a game changer. I got to view myself through a completely different lens. I got to view other people. My whole life experience up to that point just kind of disintegrated and got rebuilt. Um, and I really enjoyed it.
1: Tell me more about that. Did, why, why was this first year, this foundation degree, um, such a game changer? What was it that disintegrated in you and what grew in its place?
0: My understanding of learning. I'd always thought I was thick. I'd been told I was thick my whole life, that I was stupid. And that's why I couldn't do school. Um, and that people were either born clever or they were born stupid like me um and the clever ones do well in life and the stupid ones if they're lucky they marry well you know and i'd been unlucky i'd married badly i had to start all over again um and then i started to to read education research and read people who think about learning and think about child development and it opened up this whole world of opportunity that perhaps you could learn to be good at learning um and that it's not completely fixed at birth um some people still think it is to a certain extent but many people disagree um and i got to look at myself in in, in a different way by studying education and by studying learning and by studying teaching um and so that 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 had a huge impact on me because it way that i viewed myself up until that point point. and bearing in mind i'm nearly 30 at this stage so you know, I was in my late twenties, so mm. it had a big impact on me.
1: Yeah, do you think that a part of, of that was the validation that you got through getting sort of like positive feedback from the organisation that you were that you were attending? Because you'd you know you'd move to a different country, like you said, you'd become bilingual. You'd clearly had had you know taught yourself to do a whole range of things that that don't fit into that that sort of column of like I'm thick and I can't do stuff but i wonder what it do you think that it was something about the formal recognition that you received
0: for sure and i think that um lots of people who've come who've taken a less traditional i don't mean i think it is quite a traditional path actually for people like me but it's um there's a street smarts path and there's a an academic path and they're very different different sets of knowledge that you acquire and different skills that you develop along the way. And so I did, I mean, I found university hard, really hard. And I remember saying when I graduated two stone lighter than I'd started and slightly unhinged that if I ever say I want to study again, just shoot me because that's it. Like I'm done. Um, It's a clear indication that I've lost my mind. And now I'm often thinking I'd like to study more again. Um, So it was, yes, it was good. It made a big difference to me to be, um, for somebody to appreciate my thinking and my mind, not my kindness or my work ethic or my ability to just withstand and be resilient. Um, It was nice. To not feel like, oh, yeah, you know, McAllister's like a cockroach. You can't, you just can't stamp her out. She keeps coming back. To be, oh, McAllister's, like, got interesting ideas and it's nice to talk to her. Um, yeah, that had a big impact on me, for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: it's shaped I am as a teacher because I like talking to children.
1: Yes, yeah. So you became a French teacher and then um i mean we probably should skip over we've spoken on other people's podcasts at length about the work that you and i have done together over the last 10 years and there's a book in case you're not aware listeners that you can buy <laughs> to 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 find out more about that available in all good bookshops um but i would like to just find out a bit more about the the little bit of a journey that you took from becoming a french teacher to sort of getting interested in Learning to Learn and the point at which we met uh, 10 years ago. What was it that led you to starting to be interested, not in teaching French, but in teaching young people how to get better at learning stuff?
0: Um, So a lot of it, a lot of that work for me was around helping or supporting children to realise that they can do a lot more than they think they can. So... Um, I had noticed a pattern in the classes that I taught where there were certain behaviors that were masking, I always felt, feelings of inadequacy. And I suppose it's because these children were a little bit of a mirror to my behaviors at school and my feelings of inadequacy. And so... um, what I was interested in was how, how you can, how can you redesign the system to make sure that the children within it don't have to feel inadequate all day long for 12 years. And in doing that, you can help them to not only feel good about all the things they already know how to do brilliantly. I mean, you know, lots of the kids who are struggling at school are Incredibly adept to other things that aren't valued, so there's that, but it's not it's not an either or thing it's a it's a both and thing right How can you both be recognized and seen for being self organized and kind and all of those things, and also do well at school so that you don't have to grow up into adulthood feeling like you're stupid or that you're lesser somehow um and so that's where all. Pretty much all of my energy has been, I would say, since well, since I started teaching for the last 20 years. How can you twiddle with and rearrange and reorganize how we do learning and how we do teaching so that the children who are inside that system get to feel good about themselves, get to recognize what's good about themselves, and also leave with... With qualifications that allow them to not feel excluded by society, because society, in my experience is a is a, a game of invisible invisible passes that you either have or don't have. There are invisible tickets that let you in or keep you out, and I want I want to help children to to make their own tickets so that they can go wherever they want to go in life so that they don't feel held back
1: yes yeah um and i mean th- one of the recurring themes that has come up in a number of these conversations so far is is this idea of failure and how um how impactful that word is on somebody's uh, sense of self and sense of sort of hope for the future and um and the fact that the school system as as it currently stands sees fit to, to sort of to insist that one third of children are made to feel like failures every year. Like by definition, one third don't pass maths in English, which means that they have to resit it. Um, and, you know, you could say, well, that's a good thing. Right. We're trying to set a standard. We want everybody to be literate and numerate and we want everybody to, you know, to do really well. And if they don't meet that standard, then, you know, they they'll, they can have another chance at it later on. And what's wrong with that? Um, but actually, there's quite a lot wrong with that thinking um, because because of this sort of the, the, the flip side of it, that lots of those young people don't go on to pass it in at age 17 or 18. And that they continue to feel like failures and that that puts them in a mental box that they remain in, you know, until they're 30 or perhaps for the rest of their lives.
0: Yeah, I watched, um, I watched something, you know, those little memes that come up or little videos that come up on Facebook. And it was a guy who was 65 and he was learning, it was an advert for a television show, I think, and he was learning to read at, at, at 60 odd and what a powerful thing that was to have got to have got through to 60 believing that you can't do something like read how much of the world has been closed off to you if you can't read and to have, to have got that far in life thinking that you can't read that's that like there's something deep inside and he talked about his father and being you know he he talked about all of the emotional barriers that he has built to protect himself that he now cannot get through to learn to read. Like you, we children build these barriers to protect their feelings, and then they imprison themselves behind them. And that like, might sound a little bit over-emotional, but that's how I feel about it. And so and so as a teacher, I I want to try and make the world feel more open and more accessible for everybody and to so that you don't need permission to learn things you don't have to wait to learn things you can equip yourself with the self-belief and enough of a starter kit of tools and knowledge to to get out there and learn whatever you want to learn by yourself
1: yeah this is really useful for me because, we, you know, we've talked and thought about this pretty much nonstop stop for the last 10 years or so, but I feel like I'm sort of getting new clarity on the, the sort of the, the need for learning to learn because the system... You know by definition you know it fails one third of kids but also more widely than that just not not everybody is perfectly poised to nail their GCSEs at age you know 15 or 16 or whatever the age they are when they, at the end of year 11 um, and for so many people that is like a cliff edge I was listening to a podcast yesterday they were talking about that is a cliff edge and that's why it's so important that we that we sort of you know have a knowledge-rich curriculum and get this right so that we help prepare kids for that cliff edge Um, But if we just take a little bit of a wider view, we can say, well, you know, do we really need that cliff edge to be there? And can we not maybe have something that's a little bit more flexible that allows young people to to hit their stride at different points in time? Some of them might be ready to do that at 11 or 12. Some of them might be in their mid 20s. Some of them have got other things going on in their lives. Um, So that but but if we can, instead of making it all about that age 16 cliff edge, If we can make the aim of schooling to give every young person that self-belief that they can learn what they need to learn when they need to learn it under their own steam, when there isn't necessarily always going to be a teacher to tell them what to do and when and how. That seems to me to be a pretty good idea for a purpose of education.
0: I agree with you.
1: (laughs) That does not surprise (laughs) me. Okay, so. Um, let's move on to the, I mean, we've we've sort of merged already into the rethinking education part of this conversation. So we start with some positives. What is it that you like that you see out in the system at the moment? And this could be at the level of policy. It could be on Twitter. It could be in schools, in parents, people that you're talking to about homeschooling, the world schooling movement. What do you see out there at the moment that you think is really good that you'd like to see more of?
0: I would like to see more conversations, more open conversations about education, about the purpose of education, about what good education looks like. I am seeing more voices. Um, Social media has given lots of people a platform. I think that would not necessarily have had one before. So there are lots of different types of voices being heard and lots of interesting conversations. I think it takes a while to build up the trust that is needed in order to have genuinely challenging conversations. I think forums like Twitter shut people down very quickly, which is a shame. But this is about the positive. So I'll go. So there are conversations out there and that gives me hope because the fact that we are still arguing about what the purpose of education is and how it should be organized means that it's still something that we care about and when we care about things in my experience that's when we keep going back to try and make them work better and so it gives me hope i don't expect there to ever be an answer i would be really nervous like oh we solved we've solved that We've answered the question of what education is for, and we all have to agree to do it in the same way. That would be very troubling to me if we arrived at that point. So I'm very very pleased that we're still having heated and passionate arguments about the future of our children and our education system. So even though it frustrates me sometimes when I get into these spats on Twitter, um, I'm glad they're happening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It feels like an amazing time to be in the teaching profession or to be observing and participating in the education debate, precisely because of what you're talking about. There is this incredibly vibrant, creative, uh, often, you know, contested and sometimes quite heated um, debate, but even the heat, you know, like as difficult as that can be, you know, it shows that people are really passionate about this and that they really care deeply about it. And the heat is sort of a positive sign as well, although it doesn't always seem like that. Um, But it does feel like there's this incredible period of of sharing of, of ideas and, and best practice and resources and, you know, people writing about how to reduce workload and supporting one another, saying like, my DMs are open if you're struggling with this. And the the internet, for all of the problems that it has wrought, has also got this really positive side and I agree with you that I think that it's wonderful that there's this incredibly vibrant debate happening and that teachers and researchers, you know, on on top of everything that they're already doing, are spending, you know, their evenings and weekends bashing away at their keyboards into the early hours of the morning carving away at the marble to sort of to see if we can shape something that's um that's a little bit better um and so I totally agree that's a that's a, a great point i think is there anything else that you see out there that you that you think is really good that you are pleased about um and you want to see more of or that you would like to boost the signal of more
0: i am really pleased to notice um an increase in conversation around trauma informed practice in schools um, around the Aces movement taking into taking into account adverse childhood experiences and understanding so uh, understanding is a big word for me like there's learning, you can learn stuff and memorize it, but does it have meaning? How is that going to change your life now that you know that thing? And so being, being trauma-informed as a teacher is about continual uh, a continual development in your awareness of yourself, of how you respond to things around you, how you respond to your past experiences, how you respond to other people how we impact on one another in various ways. Learning is not solely a cognitive endeavor. Yes, obviously it's largely brain related, but your brain is situated inside a body that is also sending you all kinds of signals. And so the more we're talking about being trauma informed, the more it gives us a new window into ourselves as human beings, as whole human beings, not just the library that we carry around in our heads that we share with children, but everything that we are as individual people. And and so being trauma-informed is a practice, right? It's not just a workshop that you do. Oh, I've done a workshop on trauma-informed, box ticked. Now I'm informed about trauma. That's not what it means to be trauma-informed. And so that that way of shifting your thinking it, as a teacher, I, I've I've done a particular workshop, therefore I've learned it, isn't the same as I'm thinking about this all the time and therefore I am changing and I am evolving. And so that that then bleeds into what into the way that you teach and the way that you design your activities for your children, right? We're no longer just doing activities that they can say, I've done that. We're thinking about activities that are going to leave a trace forever that are going to change them as children.
1: Mm. So can I just ask you a little bit more about trauma-informed practice? Because it is something that you see more of. Certainly, I've sort of paid more attention to it in recent years. But I've also seen that some people are quite sceptical of it. Um, and that they think that this is sort of like the latest fad right that the attachment theories is is sort of like the new brain gym sort of thing Um, and so and many people actually might not have heard of this might not even know what ACEs means so can you just give me and listeners like a a sort of a 101 like what are ACEs what what does it mean to be a trauma-informed practitioner?
0: Oh gosh, I'm no expert. I'm learning at the moment, but I will try to put it into words for you. So, every experience that we have as individuals leaves leaves a trace, whether that's a positive experience or a negative experience. And we we hold those traces inside our bodies as well as inside our memories. And as they build up, um as they build up over time they change the way that we respond to new experiences so if we have had lots of neglect in our childhood we will respond differently to somebody who hasn't had lots of neglect in their childhood and so these these experiences stack up and interact and they shape the way that we go through life and so a child who who has always felt secure at home and has not had to be fearful, won't be as vigilant as a child who is always scanning their environment, imperceptibly from the outside, but they are always scanning for the danger that they know through experience is likely to come. And so in the most basic sense, part of their bandwidth that could be directed at learning the names of the kings and queens or developing new schema um, is being used up scanning the horizon for possible threats and they become just jumpier and um, more of their attention is is going to take them away from, from learning and if we know that as educators we can begin to see that it's happening it gives us it gives us a new set of um what do i want to say we see children differently when we see them through a trauma informed lens we begin to notice patterns in their behaviors um that we didn't see before and it, and it they're clues about how we can change what we are doing in our teaching practice to support them because if if you can support a child to find safety within themselves when they are in your classroom then they are able to turn much more of their attention to learning and therefore they are going to be much more likely to have a positive experience learning in your classroom and that positive experience that they have learning with you goes back into them and it's a counter to all of the negative experiences that have gone before so it does like it's a double win not only are they able to do to i don't know to learn better in your classroom right to pass the tests by the measures that you that you find important it also creates positive experiences that they can take away with them about how the world can be the world can be safe and the world can be um a place of possibility and achievement and that's really really important
1: yeah and so what would it look like i mean it seems like we're talking about something that's obviously an incredibly severe situation when somebody's had adverse childhood experiences they've under gone some form of trauma or multiple traumas that, like you say, stack up and interact. Um, and it seems that our nervous systems have evolved to keep us safe and that somebody who's been through traumatic experiences like that become that, that sort of hypervigilance that you're describing it's like it's it's become sort of hardwired in their nervous system that they feel jumpy that they feel like they're going to be defensive and that they've got big red buttons that are really easy to sort of to press to set them off say so what is it that we can do as teachers when we're working with young people who've had these very difficult uh, childhood experiences what can we do as as teachers and as educators and what can young people themselves do to overcome these very profound sort of like hardwired challenges that they face
0: um one of the most important things we can do as educators is not make it worse not um not contribute to that jumpiness by being able to regulate our own nervous system to be able to be a calm and safe space for children to be alongside which is a really nice thing to say right when Ofsted calm and set you into the jumpiest version of yourself you've ever been and a global pandemic drops onto the planet and and it's a genuine existential threat right so the whole world at the moment is under an existential threat so everybody is a little bit jumpy and a little bit wired right now but in an ideal world so if you are alive to that as a human being as a teacher if you know that you respond to your environment that your environment is interacting with you all of the time and whether you choose to notice it or not you are responding so a teacher a teacher who isn't choosing to tune into themselves and who doesn't believe that their environment can impact on them is not such a safe person to be around because they're not they just don't have that heightened awareness of them. I know that I roll my eyes at my own children when I have too much work to do and not enough time. Like, I can't believe you're asking me for a bowl of cornflakes. Oh, what is that behavior? That's appalling, right? And And I know that I'm doing it. So I can instantly deal with that, right? I can figure out what I've got that's on my plate that's too much. I can apologize to my children, for starters, And I can talk to them about it and explain it in a way that makes it feel safe. And teachers can do that too. Mm. If they understand how it all works.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, It seems that a lot of it is about sort of walking the talk then is what you're saying and recognizing your own early warning signs that if you as a teacher find that you're sort of feeling that you're having your buttons pressed say and it, that might not be in the classroom but it might be you know home stuff that's going on or political stuff that's happening within your department or within your school um and so it's about recognizing your own early warning signs and being able to to sort to to get your own house in order essentially is what you're saying in order to be able to then be in a position where you can help young people to, to go down that same sort of path.
0: Yeah. Human beings are a bit like icebergs, if you like. So what's happening on your face is just the tip of the iceberg. So you can think that you are choosing your words carefully and that your face is impassive and that nobody knows what's going on under the surface, but under the surface you are, you are radiating out imperceptible vibrations that other people pick up on. And you'll know this when you walk into a room and people say, oh, there's an atmosphere. Like, where's this, where do you think the atmosphere is coming from? It's not coming out of the air. It's coming out of the people that are in the room. And we create that. Um, and so if we are aware that we create it and that we are impacted when we walk into a room where there's a positive atmosphere or a, a negative atmosphere, if you like, to make it very simple, we can realize that we also have the power to radiate out safety. And positive atmosphere around ourselves by by choosing by choosing how we act and how that we have to regulate what 's going on under our own surface mm. and that enables children to feel safe in our presence, and that gives them an opportunity to start to start doing that for themselves to find out what it is that brings them that calm, safe feeling. First, they have to experience what a calm and safe feeling is. And for people who've grown up always feeling calm and safe, I'm not sure that they even realize that there are other human beings walking alongside them who don't know what that feels like. I've discovered it in adulthood. I didn't feel calm and safe when I was younger, but I know how now.
1: Yes. I yeah I agree that it's a very welcome development that people are starting to talk about about self-regulation in the way that you're talking about and that um there's an increasing recognition of the fact that you know human beings are complicated and that there's cognitive stuff going on. There's like stuff that's going on in people's minds. And that's often what the conversation around education is focused on. If you look at the list of things on the Education Endowment Foundation's teaching and learning toolkit, the things that improve you know, young people's learning, it's all stuff like, so feedback is at the top, metacognition, peer tutoring, phonics, and it's all sort of like um, technical sort of strategies for how we can get people to be better at learning stuff and there's that that's all really well and good but that's all stuff that's happening in your in the cognitive part of a human being in their mind right in their cognition in their thinking um, but there's way more to a person than their ability to think about learning and to memorize stuff. There's emotional stuff. There's how they feel physically. And so, you know, if somebody is feeling anxious about a particular lesson or there's an exam coming up or they've got friendship, you know, peer group issues, often that manifests in their chest or in their behavior, or the, their legs are tense, their, their jaw is clenched. So there's like there's physical feelings then there's emotional feelings and there's how they're feeling inside and then there's their behavioral self-regulation, how they sort of are able to mediate between their internal and their external worlds. And it seems that that's a really important distinction that people, I think we've got a long way to go at the moment, we've started this conversation, but for people to really, you know, you often see metacognition, the EEF often talks about metacognition and self-regulation as though they're joined at the hip. And I think it was them who sort of who, who attached these two ideas to one another. And they, they, they are clearly linked to one another, both about monitoring and control. But the way that the EEF talks about self-regulation is that they took, they use they use that word interchangeably to, to mean self-regulated learning. They're talking about children monitoring and controlling their learning and planning, planning, monitoring and evaluating a piece of writing, say. Um, but there's this much wider thing, and this is why, obviously, you know, I'm talking to the converted here, but for the benefit of listeners. This is why our book ended up becoming called Fear is the Mind Killer, because if you really want to help people get better at learning, you know, you you need to address that cognitive stuff. But if you strip away at the layers of the onion, fundamentally, somebody has an emotional relationship to school, an emotional relationship to particular subjects or particular teachers. Or particular experiences that they've had, um, and that's the that's the level that we sort of need to be working at. And I think for some people, they find that really daunting because a lot of this stuff sounds like therapy, right? It sounds like you're, you know, we're not qualified. Some people might say, "I'm not qualified to talk about, you know, how a kid could overcome neglect." Like, I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm here to talk about geography. Um, and I think that some teachers would be put firmly outside their comfort zone by even beginning to have this conversation that we need to become more sort of trauma-informed practitioners do you think that that's true
0: yes oh in my experience yes it makes it makes people feel very disconcerting and lots of people live mostly in their head um and if you ask somebody how they feel they'll give you a particular set of words i feel fine generally okay what does fine feel like in your body? What? What does it feel like in your body when you're fine? What do you mean? And they cannot tell you. They've never been asked before. They've never thought about it. They couldn't say, feeling fine, when I feel fine, I take longer strides. Or when I feel fine, I use different words. When I feel fine, I can like, my hands, I, I'm, I use my, I gesticulate much more. They wouldn't be able to tell you that because they've never noticed. And so all all I'm advocating is just notice more, right? What is it? If if a geography teacher feels fine when they are teaching from the front about something they're really knowledgeable about, that's the best version of them to be in a classroom with children. If you ask them to do, um, I don't know, like what's the word, a carousel, carousel student-led frenetic active learning and they're in panic mode that's not safe when they're like that so it's not that there's one way to be that's the right way for everybody it's just that there's a right way like there's a way to there's a way of being you that feels calm and safe and when you find that version of you and you can choose to get yourself back to that version of you when life gets challenging then you will be safe for children to be around and so the more teachers the more teachers who are able to find that version of themselves and maintain that version of themselves the better off all children will be in my opinion like you don't have to don't have to be a different you don't have to be completely different if that makes sense.
1: Mm. Yes. And so if there's anybody out there who's interested in finding out more about this, where, where would you, I know that you've been on a journey with this for some time and you've read lots of books on this and you listen to lots of podcasts and so on. What would you recommend for somebody who's interested in finding out more about this sort of like emotional self-regulation work, becoming a more trauma informed practitioner? Is there a, is there a good place to start? What would you recommend?
0: Sure. Um, On Twitter, you can follow the ACES to Assets Collaborative. They're doing lots of interesting work. Um, Dr. Karen Treisman, Lisa Cherry. There's Stuart Shanker and the Merit Center. He's in America, in California. And his website is a huge resource for parents, Teachers, school leaders, there are courses, there are free resources you can use. It's amazing. Um, the work of Dr. Gabor Marte, I was very fortunate enough to go and listen to him speak in Glasgow a few years ago. Um, and he talks a lot about compassionate curiosity as well. And it's just a reframe of how we look at why we do the things that we do and so instead of being instead of talking to yourself in a critical voice like oh what did you do that for Kate why did you say that or why didn't you say that you know when you leave a situation um, you reframe it as compassionate curiosity hmm that happened I wonder why you did that Kate that's interesting and it gives you a completely different um, a different way of looking at at your behaviors so there are lots of um, lots of amazing resources and people. Mike Armiger, um, they're on Twitter. You'll have seen them, and um, they've been in the education game a long time, um, and they'll help you get get a little bit further along the journey from wherever you are today.
1: Mm, thank you. I had the great pleasure to work with Mike Armiger um, for a few years at Pivotal Education, so I know something of his work. And um, I've seen some uh, videos of Gabor Mate speaking, and he's unbelievably impressive, isn't he? Like, just the lucidity and the clarity of his thinking yes. is quite something.
0: He um, but the other things... Eight hours. He sat and talked live for eight hours, and it was just amazing. Yeah.
1: Wow. But some of these other um, things that you mentioned, Aces to Assets and the Merit Centre, I have not come across before. So thank you for that. I will look them up. Um, Okay. And before we move on to thinking about challenges and solutions, um, I know that when we spoke yesterday, you talked about something else which... Sort of links to what we were talking about earlier about how you're pleased about the the wider conversation that's going on. Um, and you mentioned yesterday that in particular, um, you've been encouraged to see the, uh, the increase of female voices within the education debate.
0: Yes. Yes, I have. When I first joined Twitter, um, I lurked for a really long time and I didn't feel that I could add my voice to anything. And then I came across uh, Women Ed, um, hashtag and movement, um, 10% braver, all of these kinds of things. Um, And it made me believe that I do have a voice and that I may not have taken the same path as lots of the big voices in education, but that my, my experience is valid too. And and there's, as you mentioned earlier, 30% of young people are coming out of school believing that they're failures in the same way that I did. And who is speaking for them? Who? How are those voices being heard as well? So all of this diversity of voices and focusing on a diversity of experience has been hugely encouraging for me. And I hope that it is encouraging for other people who have taken pathways that maybe they feel Aren't as valid as others to say, oh, well, hang on a minute. I have, I may have interesting things to say and I may have interesting ideas to share, and maybe I will be listened to and heard as well. So I find that although social media can sometimes act, can try to shut people down, there are always other doorways that are open where you can go and be heard. And I like that.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, I'm a man. I don't know if you've noticed this. um, But, yeah, well, um, and so I'm interested to... So you say that you lurked before sort of taking part in a discussion. You sort of were, were like, just watching what was going on. I wonder, like, sometimes I speak to my wife, Ruthie, and she sort of says that she sometimes feels like she she sort of holds back and doesn't get involved in conversations and she puts that down to being female and this is somebody who's incredibly successful and confident and you know able to do all kinds of things but she says that she sometimes feels sort of reserved or not um not as sort of as freely um I don't not sure what the word is sort of a sense of just feeling like um like she sort of has a right to have her voice heard or something I mean do you think that this is something that is quite typical of of women or is that just a sweeping generalization
0: i don't know about all women but i do know that it affects lots of women that i have also spoken with um and and that plays out i mean i'm watching it now with my daughter who's eight years old and she is smart and funny and brave and strong and athletic and all of these adjectives and yet most people when they meet her talk about um that she's kind and she's gentle and that she's pretty and things like that and and they're not interested so much in her ideas and her thinking um and I don't I guess that just carries it just goes in in childhood and it carries all the way through that there are There are some people whose ideas and thoughts are more valid than other people's. And being a woman, definitely, it feels like it, if I speak up, whenever I've been brave enough to speak up, it's almost like, oh gosh, she said something quite smart. Like they're surprised. Um, And I have experienced that as a woman. I still experience that as a woman. Um, So yes, I think it is a thing.
1: Yeah. And I wonder if it's sort of, I mean, what would you put this down to? Is this like a an everyday sexism thing? Is it an everyday sexism thing that somehow sort of gets internalised by by women sometimes, do you think? What do you think the reason is that's behind this?
0: Um, yes, I'm not sure that it's conscious all the time. I don't think that people do it um, deliberately. Always. I think some people do do it deliberately. Um and it is it's definitely a form of, of sexism. It's people don't expect girls to be as clever as boys. People don't expect women to be as sharp as men. Um, and if they, if they are, then there's ne- they often feel that there's negative associations with that. I do feel that it's not my place to have an intellectual debate. I think you've only got to look at who's inside when there's, you know, um, people are, are, are showing off their intellect on Twitter and it's a very male dominated um, forum I find often. And if I if I wander in by mistake, I leave again quite quickly and feel like it's not my place to be there. And I'm not a shy person, I'm very confident to walk into an actual room full of human beings. Um, But I don't always feel like I can speak up. This is me being like not 10% braver, 100% braver. Um, Just doing this podcast with you, coming on and and being emotional and talking from the heart, I think, is not something that's easy to do. I think that... that, that, that people listen more to rational to rational empirical intellectual sounding arguments more and that there is a place for there is a place for being more holistic there is a place for all of human kind in education and that includes women.
1: <laughs> yes it shouldn't be it shouldn't even need saying that should it but obviously you know the fact that you're saying it suggests that it does need to be said um and like I say this is not something that being male is sort of you know just naturally I I don't feel like I have noticed as much of this as I would do if I was female but like I say having spoken to my wife about it and having spoken to you about it previously um it definitely is real I think and and I think that lots of the abrasiveness that we see um you know, on Twitter, often comes from men who um who sort of grandstand and take very sort of strong positions on things, um and I fully welcome this this rebalancing of the debate. And like you say, the women Ed, ten percent braver. It seems like there are places that women can go and find um find sort of strength in in a collective voice, um and long long may it last and continue.
0: It's a place where you can go to practice speaking up and i don't think that certain certain groups of people are encouraged to stand up and speak up enough in school we talk about this all the time with oracy practicing you know in a general way but there are there are smaller groups within the general population who i feel are encouraged even less to stand up and speak up um so having these forums where you can go and practice until you feel brave enough to go into the big boys arena um, certainly has been helpful for me.
1: As well as just satisfying my unquenchable appetite for talking about education, I would really like for this podcast to be the catalyst for a wider conversation about education reform. With this in mind, there is now a Rethinking Education community forum, where listeners can follow up the ideas we discuss in the podcast, ask questions either to myself or to my guests, and interact with one another as we think through the details of how we might rethink and reform education, so as to increase our chances of surviving this crazy period of history that we are currently living through. There's also a free 10-part video course, Learning to Learn at Home, for parents and carers who want to help their children, anyone really, but young people in particular, become more confident, proactive, independent learners. The Rethinking Education Community Forum is a mighty network, so it works on any device. If you're on a computer, visit rethinking Education. Dot m-n dot co, or you can download the Mighty Networks app and search for Rethinking Education. Okay, on with the show. Right. We're going to move on to thinking about challenges and solutions. Um, And I think it probably makes sense to deal with these in turn. So we'll talk about the first challenge and then we'll see if we can fix that challenge, if you like. And then we'll move on to the next one and so on, rather than doing them all in in a batch. Um, And so the first one, I know that you were keen to talk about binary thinking can you explain a little bit about what you mean by this why do you think that this is a a challenge and why is it was this the the first thing that that you thought of when you were thinking about the challenges that we face
0: yes it definitely came it was the first thing that came to mind um that there seems to be a right way of thinking and a wrong way of thinking on, on on either side and therefore if you if you are someone who... So I'm I'm like a solution-seeking missile, if you like. I'm like, there's a problem here. Let's see what we can do to fix that, right? Like, why does that have to be uncomfortable forever? Like, maybe we can take it apart and put it back together again and it will be more comfortable to sit with. Um, and And I find that it's very difficult to have those conversations to say, well, I like this and this and this aspect of traditional educational pedagogy but i'd love to add this and this and this from a more progressive mindset because i think it would work better and oh no you can't no 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 you have to you have to think this way or that way you can't think both ways at the same time you can't blend ideas and i think there seems to be a lot of that about at the moment so you're either uh pro-Brexit, which means you you have to be racist and all of these other things that go with it. There's no, there can't be any subtlety in why you might choose to make decisions. And I think that that is very dangerous for, for people like me who like to find solutions and who like to bring people together and who don't like this sense of increased separateness that is happening. Um, I do believe that... Um, when we come together to try and solve and overcome challenges, everybody wins. You know, it's better for everybody. So I find the binary thing at the moment, a real challenge.
1: Yes, I agree. I think that, We definitely see a lot of that. And um, we were talking about the social dilemma yesterday, the documentary on Netflix about how um, Silicon Valley sort of, you know, is polarizing opinions and people are going hard one way or hard the other way. And there's this incredible graph in that. Um, in that documentary which shows the extent to which people identify with with democrats or republican parties and how it sort of used to really overlap it was like a blue a blue bell curve and a red bell curve and they sort of largely overlapped and then it shows how it changes over time and over the last sort of five years or so it's just really gone hard to the sort of you know people are really polarized and like you say it's not just about um you know democrat or republican it seems to be everything and 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 the educational debate the sort of the, tra- the trad prog thing is a microcosm of that but we're not only talking about trad prog i you know ideologies um when we're having this conversation about binaries like you say it's sort of like You know, I know that within your family, there's people who are really hard in favour of Brexit, people who are really hard against it. And it's really hard to find common ground or to even have a conversation that's just, you know, in any way, you know, productive or sort of healthy, healthy discussion.
0: That sense of if you're not fully with me, then you must be against me. And that doesn't invite challenge. Challenge is important. Like, I now actively seek out people who challenge my thinking to have conversations with it's not comfortable but it helps me to grow and it helps me to to examine my thinking and to make sure that there aren't obvious flaws in my thinking or things that i haven't come across yet that can complement my thinking and and you need safe places to go and be able to do that and so as things get increasingly polarized there isn't a safe place to have those conversations.
1: Yeah yeah Um, and so what is the solution to this right how can we I mean this is a big problem right I'm not expecting you to have a pat answer to this but how can we start to move beyond this increasingly polarized um, world into something that's a little bit more about um, finding common ground and f- just finding ways to get on with people better. Because it's it, that's the thing. It's not just like you're with us or against us. But it's like it's it's not like just on this issue. It's like I can now no longer talk to you about anything. Like you are privileged, or you are sort of bigoted, or you are ignorant. You don't understand. You know my value. You need you need to educate yourself. You need to go and inform yourself before we can even have a conversation. Um, We're seeing lots of that intolerance, like you say, coming from both sides. And it's a tough nut to crack this one, so um, fix that.
0: Well, uh, funnily enough, (laughs) um, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot because I think growing up inside a polarised, well, not a polarised family, they're all on one side, I'm on the other. Um, But this is important to me. So some of the work that I was doing between stopping working with you and doing what i'm doing now i was working with um the refugee population migrant population in sort of 2015 at the peak of what we called the refugee crisis but you know it's been going on a really long time and we were looking at how we could make transitions for people easier because they were making lots and lots and lots of transitions almost daily having to readapt and 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 we started by so what we ended up doing sorry otherwise that would be a really long story but what we ended up doing is creating safe spaces what like i said like i find that the women ed the group of these group of women on twitter is a place where i can go and start being brave with my conversations and we can create safe spaces where conversations can take place and so we physically did that we did that with a double-decker bus that everybody could go into we did it with an inflatable classroom and a van that we drove around and we popped up and we created a physical space that wasn't the host didn't belong to the host community and it didn't belong to the community that were arriving it was a third space that both could go into and find common ground. And we found common ground by cooking together, and we found common ground by making music together, and we found common ground. And then while we were busy doing that thing that we had in common, we could have other conversations. And it's in those spaces that we can begin to tackle some really big challenges because we feel safe to open up and be vulnerable and have those conversations. And and I think we need to do more of that. We need to do more of keeping the door open and standing in the doorway and saying, we might not look the same, we might not sound the same, we might not dress the same, we might not think the same way, but you are welcome. That like, you can come in and we can have this conversation. And because it's very difficult to walk into somebody else's space where everybody feels different, like that's a really hard thing to do. I'm a brave person and I won't walk into some spaces where I don't feel like I, I I don't feel comfortable. there. And it's not anybody's fault. That's come from me. I just don't feel comfortable walking in. So when we create this new space, everybody can go in because it doesn't look like anybody's yet because it isn't anybody's yet because it's new and you get to shape it together. Um, And I have found in my small experience, I've done this in France, I've done it in the UK, I've done it in Italy, Greece. Now I'm in the Dominican Republic. I keep doing it again and again and again with different types of people. And there's something about building something new from scratch, creating a new space together that weaves a special kind of magic. It just, it works fast. People build relationships quickly. They feel safer more quickly. And therefore, they can focus more of themselves on on overcoming challenges and it's just a it's just an evolved version of what we were doing in in a classroom full of kids twelve years ago I think
1: yes yeah, um I like it and there there are is there's quite a lot of overlaps here with with the work that I've been doing in the last few years. Um, And I think that there's a lot that we can do on an individual level. And what you're talking about is on a collective level about sort of engineering ways for people to come together with diverse experiences and opinions about things. Um, And it's not hard to do that sort of stuff where you just sort of you set up a a bunch of ground rules. Like you say, if you if you want if you want group work to go really well. You say, you know, um, make sure that you share all relevant information, especially if it's inconvenient information. Don't do that thing where you don't say something because you think it's going to contradict somebody and therefore you want to avoid the conflict. Like In this particular conversation, that's what we actively want to encourage. And I, this is the work that I've been doing in implementation where, you know, if we're looking at implementing some sort of whole school initiative, we put an a implementation team together that's made of, of stakeholders from throughout the organization. So we've got teaching assistants, middle leaders, senior leaders, newly qualified teachers, experienced teachers, senior leaders and they're all sitting around a table looking at this problem. And then they go away, they collect data. So the TAs go away and interview other TAs, the middle leaders go and interview other middle leaders and so on. And you get this real real strong sense that you know what the organization is thinking, what's and all. And that gives you a really good basis for, for implementing some change. And that's just in a sort in a practical sense, in that it's not hard to 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 just agree a set of ground rules to say that we we can say what we really think here, honestly, without fear of repercussion. And there are exercises that you can do to put yourself in other people's shoes and so on. Um, but then also just on an individual level, you know, I think that not a number of people are starting to do this recently. I think especially since 2016, when Brexit and Trump just totally swiped lots of people who are traditionally of the left especially as i am and i think that you are as well um well i know that you are um was like what the hell just happened like i didn't understand that and so lots of people then started to read more widely and i've definitely been on that journey you know i've been subscribing to the spectator for the last year or so and I even read a few Ayn Rand books, which I don't particularly recommend. But but what I do recommend is like watching sympathetic interviews. You know, like when you see somebody who's like some sort of somebody who's like considered to be a polarizing figure, even somebody like Katie Hopkins, say. I remember watching an interview with her that was like a sympathetic interview by somebody who was also of the right. I think it was on the Rubin report or something. And she's talking about, you know, she's not got her back up there. She's relaxing and she's smiling. She's talking to somebody. She's not having to sort of to play the game that she plays where she just gets clicks for saying outrageous stuff. Um, and she's talking about her values, and I think that she was in an army family. I think her dad was in the services or something, and so she—that was her world, right? And she had this very strong sense of patriotism and, and an attachment to the to the idea of a nation state, and that's the values that drive her as a person. And when you when you sort of take the effort to reach out and you think, okay, like what what common values do do Katie Hopkins and I share? Like obviously she's an extreme version, but Actually, when you when you go through this process, um, you find that that there's, you know, it's that sort of that phrase that Joe Cook said, we've got a lot more in common than that which divides us. And it's really true, even with people who you would consider to be, you know, the most polarizing, toxic voices uh, on the debate, you know, and, and unfortunately, to come back to the social dilemma, the, the Internet rewards that behavior, doesn't it? People who say outrageous stuff um you know get clicks and we're all guilty of it you know i was i found myself doing it recently you know if you say something really sort of vanilla on twitter nobody likes it nobody retweets it nothing happens you say something a little bit you know more abrasive and all of a sudden you've got people going what do you mean that's outrageous and then you end up having a more interesting discussion and so like the the forum you know we're all we're all sort of playing this game to some extent um but and 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 the internet in particular sort of requires that we do but um we can become more self-aware, I think about it. And and there are there are definitely ways that we can that we can interact that are more healthy.
0: For sure. and they take a little bit more energy and effort, but they are much more rewarding. Now like when you every time you every time somebody sticks their finger in your outrage button and it gets you, like your 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 body gets flooded with stress hormones. And over time, that builds up, and it's kind of toxic, just going around and round and round in you, and it makes you super sensitive to to lots of things. So being able to being able to be more measured and um, and to be able to let to let those opportunities to be outraged sail by um, is really important, um, and I think. I think we can spend a little bit more time inviting people to find that version of themselves. It's really easy to be manipulated. We have spent a lot of time and energy uh, figuring out how to get human beings to do what we want them to do. And we know how that works now. And we can, doesn't take a lot of imagination. And there are, you know, we've seen where it can go, right? When you manipulate people with fear, we've seen where it can go. People don't think they just do. And, and that can be terrifying. And so I suppose what I'd like to encourage is is the antidote to that, right? Is how do you how do you learn how to be more aware of when someone else has got a pointed stick in your outrage button deliberately because they know that if they keep prodding you repeatedly, you're going to act in a certain way that is to their benefit. If we can teach people how to notice when that's happening to them, then they can say, Oh, no, thank you. I see what you're trying to do there. And um, I'm not playing that game. I'm going to make a rational conscious choice about what I want to do. That's the best thing for me, not the best thing for you. And that's that's self-regulation. That's we can teach that in schools. We can teach children how to notice when they are being manipulated and and to guard against it, and to make sure that they're not doing it, that they're not adding to that energy and making it worse. Um, we, you know, I've, My phone is in black and white most of the time. I learned that trick a few years ago, so it doesn't work on me in the same way. We can, we can choose to be manipulated less than we are if we know it's happening. If we don't know it's happening, we can't put those guards up
1: hmm so did you just say that your phone is in black and
0: white yes
1: what do you mean by that
0: if you switch your mobile phone so Tristan Harris who did who made the film the social dilemma I've been following him for a long time he set up something called the center for humane tech and that I'm nerdy about things like that so all of that fascinates me human behavior and the way that your phone works on your brain is the, 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 the colours and the lights and the things dropping in, right? It's like crack for your brain. And so if you switch it into black and white, into grayscale, uh, it doesn't work.
1: I didn't even know you could do this. Yeah,
0: it's literally repulsive. Your phone is lit- repulsive. You pick it up and you're like, why would I, I want to poke at that? Ugh. And you put it down again.
1: So you can go into any phone in settings and make it go black and white?
0: Yeah, it's called grayscale or well-being mode. Wow! Just you, the whole of your screen goes into black and white, and it, all you can really do on it is like if you want to still look something up on the internet, you can read it. It just doesn't. It doesn't poke at your brain. It doesn't like entice you in to look at it. You don't want to look at it. It's repulsive.
1: That's amazing. I really want to really want to go and make that happen right now. I'm going to make a note of it. Thank you. Um, and so, I mean, you're talking like I mean. We're learning to learn, as right, and this we're talking about monitoring and control again, aren't we? You were just talking about watching your thoughts go by, realizing that your thoughts can exist independently of you. That thoughts, to some extent, are like memes that reproduce themselves in people's minds, and our minds are like really fertile sort of petri dishes, right? That memes just sort of like take root, and we have responses to things, and we see something on the internet, we feel outraged, we fire off a tweet we sort of feed the machine um and actually through the 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 emancipatory mechanism the way that we get out of that that loop of having our buttons pressed and pressing other people's buttons is monitoring and control to to pay attention to notice what happens um, and through noticing and paying attention, we start to realize where the levers are. We realize that, we, you you know, you are not your thoughts, that you don't have to. I love that phrase. Don't believe everything you think. Yeah. You know, recognize that um, that you may very well be wrong about many of the things that you believe currently. Um, yeah. And and I, I also think that meditation is a super important part of this problem that uh, or pr- rather a super important part of the solution and we we included a little bit of meditation in the learning skills curriculum but not very much and not from the outset and i think in my future work with schools i want to explore this more deeply because um it seems to be that meditation is like the ultimate sort of like set of tools that you can teach somebody or that you can learn for yourself into how to monitor and control you know we're not just talking about monitoring and controlling you know your ability to write an essay here or to pass a spelling test but monitoring and controlling your innermost thoughts and the way that you respond and react to the external world mm.
0: because we can't control the external world as we're all experiencing now right like no one is controlling what is going on globally and yet you the so I said in, I was talking to somebody else recently about how incredibly grateful I am that I have a set of tools and strategies to use when life is really challenging. Like I know what to do when I don't know what to do. And I know how to manage unmanageable situations. I, I, I can handle it, I can cope and I can do more than cope. And I've learned how to do that they're, they are strategies and tools that I have picked up over a lifetime that have enabled me to be able to to adapt and to not panic and to hold my nerve and to be kind to myself and to you know to to get through difficult things um, and I I think we can do that in schools too like we can teach knowledge. And we can teach those things too, so that when kids leave school, they can—they don't get knocked down by the first of life's curveballs because life just fires them at you. I, I used to think when I was younger that when I got older, they'd stop coming, right? Somehow life would, I'd suddenly reach an age where everything would be, I'd see it all coming. That's just not true. Life just continues to fling curveballs at you. So the the adept you are at at responding to them and and getting getting over whatever they throw up it doesn't life doesn't it, they don't hold you back for long um and I think that that's a positive thing being able to adapt and change and bounce back quickly I think that's helpful enough
1: Yeah yeah of course So you just mentioned knowledge and obviously um, in the education debate at the moment this idea of a knowledge-rich curriculum has really gained some ground in recent years um, and you can see why that's happened it was partly a sort of a response to the skills agenda that was big in the sort of 2000s and it's also just a recognition of you know the cognitive science and you know the science recognizing that knowledge is really foundational but um, for some people like somebody who I was talking with recently um, said that they, they really think that the knowledge-rich curriculum is the answer, like this is the thing, like whatever it is that we wanna do, the knowledge-rich curriculum is the answer. I was listening to a podcast yesterday where somebody else was saying, yeah, but we also need to to teach kindness. And the other person said, yeah, but like, that's just another kind of knowledge, like knowing that you have to be kind is just knowledge. And so there's this real massive attempt to sort of try to frame the whole of this problem as a knowledge problem. Um, And I I think that it would be interesting to touch on this briefly because you're you're designing this curriculum at the Hive School. And I know that you talk about there being three strands to your curriculum, one of which is knowledge. Do you want to just talk about this briefly as we're talking about potential solutions to this um, to this problem of binary thinking and how we can teach young people to be more adaptable in the way that you were just describing?
0: Sure. Um, I think we have a a quite a narrow view of what knowledge is important at the moment, certainly in the the UK education system. You spend 12 years um, converging on one one set of knowledge that you have to have absorbed and be able to um, reproduce in, in, in exam conditions. It doesn't take into account any of the other knowledge that could be collected, throughout those 12 years. Um, And I, I don't know, I have a bit of a, I even find the expression, the best of what's been thought and said, troublesome. Thought and said by whom? Like I've thought and said some amazing stuff, but maybe I didn't write it in a book, right? And maybe it didn't end up on a school curriculum. And I've met some fascinating people who've thought and said, life changing things people have made one comment, and it's changed my life and changed other people's lives. Like how is that not the best of what's been thought and said? There's so much that's the best of what's been thought and said. How can you possibly choose just some of it to put in a knowledge rich curriculum? I just even the idea of that I find hard to wrap my head around. There's so much that we can know. Why are we i don't know why do i why just head towards one particular? outcome um I mean I know it's easier like that right and then you can you can rank people against how much of it they they know at the same age in life but if that's not your purpose if your purpose is wider than that if it's bigger than that then it then it holds you back this idea of just having that as a curriculum so at high school we have um like the kids will know an awful lot of stuff by the time they leave school and it will be we're building it around the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So there's not a huge amount that you can know about how the world works and how people works and how um, how people work. Sorry, and how we can um, make the world a more harmonious place. I guess. Um, but there are also the the skills involved in that, the the kind of uh, applied knowledge, if you like. Um, Knowledge of how you work, knowledge of yourself, knowledge of other people, knowledge of how you interact with the world around you, um, and knowledge of how to 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 build relationships is also really important. I think that we're missing that a lot in the way that we do school curriculums, because a huge amount of what you do once you leave school, even while you're at school, is about human beings, is about managing yourself around other human beings and being with other human beings to achieve stuff together. And if you know what makes you tick and you know, what makes other people tick and you have, um, lots of knowledge about how to, to, to make things work better for you, then life is smoother. And so at hype we are, focusing all the things that we were doing before i think intuitively and not so explicitly um i'm making much more explicit now so we're talking about how you form a relationship with yourself and how you become self-aware and you know right down to different check-in techniques different ways to ask yourself how you're feeling today and to record that and then to respond accordingly um and and making it a very deliberate thing that we do. How do you get yourself into the best state of mind to tackle the task that you have set for yourself? And that might be a learning task, or it might be something that you need to do at home. But there's an optimal zone for achieving that task. And if you know how to get yourself, A, you know what the optimal zone is for achieving that task, and b you know how to get yourself into it then then you can be much more effective as a human being that's the thinking
1: okay and so these three the three strands of the curriculum are knowledge skills and relationships yeah is that the third one can you tell me about the relationships one because knowledge and skills, we hear a lot about. What's this going to actually look like in terms of, um, you know, this like school life? You were just talking about somebody's relationship with themselves. Um, I'm assuming that it also, you know, focuses on their relationships with one another and with the out- outside world. Um, what's that going to look like? Would you say?
0: So, if if you have something that you want to achieve, um, there are different ways that you can go about achieving it. And historically, I think, we have a very individualistic approach to, to achieving our learning outcomes. I, I need to do this all by myself. And I don't even want to share that. I remember being a child at school and bending my elbow around my work so that nobody else could copy my answers. <laughs> because I, and, and that was a thing, right? And it was cheating if you asked somebody else for an answer it's not cheating it's sensible if you know that somebody else knows how to do what you want to do ask them like how did they learn how to do it and can they can they help you get there too um and so but if you don't know how to have those conversations if you don't know how to approach that you don't know how to build the relationship that you would need in order to achieve that you can't ever can't ever do that you can't ever make life easier for yourself And human beings do really well around other human beings when they are able to communicate their needs effectively and have their needs met. And so, again, it's one of those things. If you are fortunate and you're born into a family that teaches you how to articulate your needs and how to meet them and is good at meeting one another's needs, then you will potentially learn how to do that. And if you grow up in a family that doesn't know how to do that, then you won't. And if you don't get taught how to do it at school, when are you exactly supposed to learn how to form healthy and meaningful relationships that can help you navigate life?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it-
0: it's, it's, it's who you know sometimes, not always just what you know. Like there's, there's that expression exists for a reason, right? It's not what you know, it's who you know that matters. And if you know how to form relationships, then it doesn't have to be an accident of birth, right? It doesn't have to be that you were born to parents who are good at networking. You can build your own networks.
1: Yeah. I think that this is a very sensible way forward and that we can um, teach this stuff more you know explicitly like how to get along with other people, and we did this. This is something that we we put a lot of focus on in the later years in the learning skills curriculum at Sea View. Um, You know, starting out at the start of the year where young people were able to sit with the person of their choosing so they could sit in in their friendship pairs, so they could learn how to speak and listen really effectively using these ground rules for exploratory talk within those pairs. And then you'd introduce a third person and then a fourth, and then we would repeat that cycle in the second half of the year but with you know groupings of the teachers choosing right and so that by the end of the year the the kids were expected to be able to have a high level conversation with anybody in any group size that they that they found themselves in um and the 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 kids really enjoyed that aspect of it they liked the fact that they were required to sort of to venture out of the apparent comfort of their friendship groups and to sort of to to get to know one another better um, they really like it and kids are really interested in one another and they're sort of you know we're sometimes imprisoned we think that that, that our friendship group is a thing of, of a place of support and comfort but it also can cost it us and stop us from from you know taking risks and you know talking to new and different people um, and and I what you mentioned about about individualism really resonates with me and it seems like this is a much more helpful way to frame the trad prog debate where you know we just go round in circles and you know guy claxton calls it the punch and judy show um of just sort of endless back and forth and which one is right and you know books books have been written about how wrong-headed the whole progressive ideal is but what's a what's a much more useful way of looking at it is individualistic pursuit versus collective pursuit better than or better with you know competition collaboration and when you frame it like that, it's really obvious that we need to strike a balance between these things. And it seems to me that, like lots of the lots of the traditionalist thinking and the practice that goes on at the moment with things about cognitive load theory and improving kids' ability to to put in, you know store information and knowledge and understanding in their long-term memory using methods like retrieval practice and so on, that these are very useful things but they are quite individualistic pursuits it's about helping that individual person develop you know their internal schema and helping them to 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 perform better in exams which is a better than metric right who can perform better than exams exam grading is a zero sum game like there's only so many grade 9s and 8s and 7s up for grabs and it's it's like a darwinian you know um almost like a um a battle royale type situation it's like you know like we can't all be winners here um and it seems to me that that's not very healthy <laughs> um if it's if that's all that we do right and people who say that they don't like group work you know i read a thing recently where a very sort of prominent traditionalist person um had written that um that things like group work and teaching tolerance and so on in schools was the set is is um, the same as homeopathy is to so open heart surgery, you know? People are framing, you know perfectly reasonable (laughs) like honestly like I'm not that's not even a misquote or an exaggeration um people are you know the idea that we should teach young people how to how to get along with one another and I don't know how you can do that other than by putting them in groups and requiring that they learn how to get along with one another and explicitly teaching them how to do so and you know doing that in quite a traditional way you know you 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 model it you you allow them opportunities for practice you give them feedback which they can then respond on this is all respond to this is all like traditionalist pedagogy in some sense it's just like that the ends are more progressive i suppose than just sort of retaining knowledge but it just it feels like this is a much more sensible way of framing the debate because when we do it's very obvious to see that we need a a, a balance between competition and collaboration um, and then we can start to look at what that looks like in terms of curriculum and pedagogy and it sounds like this I, I love the idea of you know knowledge and skills and relationships as being these three sort of interwoven strands that and and none of them are prioritized this is not a knowledge rich curriculum and nor is it a relationships rich curriculum or a skills rich curriculum it's a super rich curriculum because it it combines these three things um it's even more rich than the most knowledge rich thing
0: I hope so because you know when you've got there's something you want to achieve um and you kind of you go okay this is where I am now and this is where I want to be and how what do i need in order to make the journey from where i am right now to where i want to be and how will i know if i've if i've got there how will i know if i've been successful and you, you know what do i need to know in order to get there and what do i need to be able to do in order to get there and who can help me make that journey and i think that's often the missing the missing part of it is that We have this strange sense that we all have to, um, you know, go on this massive odyssey by ourselves, and we don't. Sometimes we can just look for somebody who's made the journey ahead of us and ask them, like, what was it like for you, and what did you learn along the way, and how can you help me to get there too? Um, And that's not on offer everywhere. It's also something that you can only get if you can pay for it. So you get into adulthood. And if you're lucky, you'll notice that you're a bit screwed up. And then if you're really lucky, you'll you'll have enough money to spend on helping somebody untangle your thinking with you so that you can move forward more smoothly. Um, And that's a really privileged thing to be able to do. But if we can teach children to be their own guide, as they're going along through their learning journey to notice to notice when they've got what they need and to notice when they're missing something and to know where to look to find it and how to ask for help when they need it then then everything remains available to them i guess that's my that's my thing my thing is about feeling closed out and not allowed in and and i want to I want to change that for the people who come behind me. I want to change that for the children that I teach to make them feel that the whole world is open to them and that they know they know what to say and what to do in order to get to where they want to go.
1: yeah, yeah, I'm just so looking forward to seeing how this thing plays out. Because um, obviously we need balance, and and it seems so. We we were recently speaking with somebody, weren't we, who um, knew somebody who had worked at, at the High Tech High in the states, um, where um, they described the young people as being able to to leave. They they were you know able to direct a movie, and they could raise thousands of dollars overnight in campaigning, and they were really active people who knew what to do when they didn't know what to do. But their, you know, their spelling was shocking (laughs) and they weren't weren't very good at maths and like, you know, just like mental arithmetic. Right. And clearly, like that agenda had been privileged above the academic agenda. Um, And it just seems to me, and I think that you share this, that I mean, and, and as yet it's unproven. Right. It's untested. We don't know whether it's possible. I don't know. Of that many examples of schools that are that are doing both of the that are meeting both of these agendas in a really and in a consistent way over time, that's the really that's the rub, right? Can we actually make this happen at a system level? Um, and so um, I'm going to be really interested to see how this how this plays out. Um, and anybody's as...
0: listening, <laughs> who, who is making it work, who's like totally sure that they've nailed it, please please get in touch because I would love to ask you to help me make my journey more smoothly um, and to avoid some pitfalls if I can. Um, Because I'm still learning. I, you know, I learned a lot from the work that we did together. I learned a lot from working with adults and whole family groups. Um, And, and I'm going to learn a lot more doing this. So it's exciting. It's exciting. I think that you, Still feel excited about teaching and learning after 20 years and if you are not feeling excited about teaching and learning after 20 years then um you need to find some of those forums where you can go and talk to people um who make you feel like that again
1: of course and and this is you know this is where you're at now in your life but this is not where you were you know, five or 10 years ago, you know, you were not in a situation where you were going to sell your house and move to the other side of the planet and sink half of your life savings into, <laughs> into you know, growing a new school movement. Like that was not something that, you know, you could just flip a switch and make it happen. You've been on a journey with this, but it seems what what's really interesting is that it's the walking, the talk thing you know we've been talking about learning to learn I recently interviewed Ian Cunningham with self-managed learning and, and it hit lots of the principles of self-managed learning overlap with learning to learn and what you find is that when you do this work with people they're often not where, you know, a year down the line, they are not doing what they were doing when you started that conversation they realise that this isn't working for them and that some things they're happy with and other things that they're not, and they start to change their lives. And little by little, you find that you can, you know, change your world and therefore the wider world. um, Which brings us neatly, I think... Sorry, did you want to add something there?
0: No, I think I just wanted to say that... Um it's it's often viewed as a negative if maybe there's a bit missing but like we're kind of obsessed with everything being in before children finish school at 16 or 18. like it all has to be in there and it all has to be tested as having been in there like over the space of two or three weeks in june and that's a bit crazy because If you, when you leave school to go, okay, well, I I know how to do this. I know how to do that. I know how to make a film. I know how to change the world, but my maths is a bit shoddy. Like, you know what to do. You go online or you find a teacher, you find yourself a tutor and you get your maths to the level that it needs to be in order to achieve what you want to achieve. Learning doesn't end when you've passed those exams. That's just the beginning of the rest of your life, hopefully filled with learning. And if if when children reach that point, they go, oh, there's a bit missing, like I'm aware that my knowledge isn't as filled in or my competence isn't as strong as I want it to be in this particular thing. Then they have a set of tools and strategies and people that they can go to to help them fill in that gap.
1: you mentioned something earlier when we were talking about convergent versus divergent. And it seems like the system as it's currently set up, it's all like this convergent, there's this bottleneck through which all people must pass. And it's like this sorting hat mechanism of the GCSE uh, in this country anyway. And obviously, this, that the model is replicated all over the world. And it seems to me that that model of education just does not fit the reality of the fact that young people are not a homogenous group. They are unbelievably um you know diverse and people have got different stuff going on and develop at different rates and different speeds and at different points in time. And if we if we just sort of flipped that that metaphor of convergent to divergent, what would a divergent education system look like that is able to be responsive to, you know, to people's growing and developing needs? I remember thinking a number of years ago about an idea of a voucher system where, you know, for example, I'm not saying that this is the solution, but it's just an idea where you could give kids um, a voucher for two years of free education at age 14 and they can either choose to use it now or they can use it when they're 25 if you want and there's like two more years of free education because there are some kids at age 14 whose their heads are not in the game they're not in the zone for whatever reason you know that might be maybe it's aces maybe it's you know family stuff maybe it's just you know their their own personal rate of development they're just sort of still a bit immature they're more interested in friends which we know is a massive thing for many teenagers but, you know, 14 year olds can, you know, earn a bit of money and go and work on a market stall and can do stuff. Right. And maybe they'll come back to it later on and maybe they won't. Um, it just seems to me that that sort of thinking might be quite productive. And some people I can also almost sort of hear like the sort of critics saying, oh, my God, that's outrageous. That's just widening the gap between the haves and the have nots. And you're just going to accelerate, you know, the inequality and and that, you know, that heartfelt opinion is coming from a good place but this brings us neatly I think to the to the final thing that you said that you wanted to talk about in terms of the challenges that we faced which was like a lack of willingness to even have this conversation
0: yeah I think we've got so stuck in the model that we use now that we've used for hundreds of years that we can't imagine it any other way and i've had I, i've been reimagining and rethinking it you know playing that playing that um that thought game if i took it all apart and i put it all back together again how would i put it back together what would i want it to do and what would i keep and what would i leave behind and it's it's really interesting when i talk to other people and you and i have had conversations um, and you've gone, no, I can't see where you're going with that. No, I can't imagine that working. Right, let's just do the thought experiment. Let's just keep going with the idea. Let's see how how far we can push our reimagining. And it doesn't mean that you're going to end up at the far end of your thought experiment, but it enables you to go to new places and to bring new ideas into to, to overcoming a challenge. And there are a lot of challenges to the way that our education model is set up. 30% of young people aren't doing well. It costs a huge amount of money, it burns up teachers and makes them miserable and unhealthy. You know, there's there's a lot that needs, that could do with a good old overhaul. And I find that there's a very small pool of people that I can have that conversation with. Um, I was talking to Kay Sidebottom just recently and she said, Oh, it's been a long time since I've actually had that kind of conversation with someone who's who's really thinking. And I remember being inside school and thinking, it cannot be different. It's this way because this is the only way it can be. The idea that it could be different is it was beyond my capacity. And it's only as I've come outside of the school system and I've literally traveled further and met more people and seen different ways of doing all kinds of things that i've realized it doesn't have to be the way that it is and so i'd like to see more creative thinking i was at um, an rsa tribute to sir ken robinson online and it's sort of 20 years since he wrote his report the name of which escapes me right now but about how we could reimagine education And it hasn't, there's been very little impact. Um, Lots of people are talking about how they wish it could be different, but I'm not sure that they believe that it can be different. Um, And I think that's a challenge. If you don't believe it can happen, then where can you go with that thinking? Um, So a, a lack of imagination and belief that it can be different, I think is holding us back from making any real change
1: yeah yeah um i've certainly come across that and you see examples of it online that there are people who are who are definitely sort of well more conservative than others right and you know people say that you know um that you're conservative about what you know about and you know this idea this this hashtag lefty trad right so there's people who are of the left which is generally considered to be a more progressive political ideology but who are teachers who are traditional about teaching because they're like, actually what we've got here is, you know, there there was a good example of this this week where somebody, some entrepreneur had had put a list on Twitter that said like, we need to be teaching these things on the national curriculum. And it was basically, you know, like uh, just a, a typical thing that an entrepreneur would write. So it was like, you know, selling and networking and, you know, um, being creative and all that stuff. And and there was, like, this universal disdain. He ended up uh, deleting the tweet because he just, like, lit a touch paper, just like, yeah, there's not many things that Edu Twitter agrees on, but when somebody steps into the fray, um, they're like, whoa, they're like, we're just going to, you know, unanimously just sort of tear you to tear you asunder if you suggest that you know we should be doing things radically differently um without without thinking it really carefully because you know he might have had some valid points to say right but but the way that we frame this discussion is really important and i saw a really interesting twitter thread recently that i was a part of where you know there's this organization that's just sprang up in the last few weeks called rethinking assessment and they're looking at you know, GCSE in particular is being a problem, and it's quite a diverse coalition of voices that they've got—not just teachers, but you know, neuroscientists and and so on, people who involved in this, and um, and that somebody was criticizing this movement for for sort of essentially being too critical and saying, like, we need to scrap GCSEs. And that, and I do agree that, like, we should maybe ban the word scrap from this conversation, because we hear that all the time. We should scrap the DFE. We should scrap Ofsted, scrap GCSEs, you know. And it's like, well, what are you going to put in its place? Like, we need to have something that's a lot more of a, like, helpful suggestion than just, like, trash everything. Um, and you hear that other phrase that people often say, which is, like, we need to just tear the whole thing up and start again. And my heart always sinks when I hear that. Because I sort of think, like, what does what do you even mean when you say that? What do do you sort of tear up schools? Should we just like stop, just close all the schools overnight, and then figure out what we like? What what are you actually talking about when you say that? Like, that's not in any way helpful. And I think that the the language with which we phrase this sort of um, ideas about education reform is so important. but that's what we're here to do, right? That's what this podcast is all about. This the idea of rethinking education and and trying to encourage um, people to take part in this conversation. And although this is still quite small and it's been only been going for a few weeks, you know I've had some really lovely feedback from people. And there are people out there, people who are keen listeners to the show, who are really interested in rethinking education and in having this conversation and people who are really quite traditional as well. Like there's, there's a chap who I've worked with quite closely recently um, who listened with great interest and he, you know, he would consider himself to be a traditionalist um, and he listened with great interest to the Ian Cunningham stuff in particular. Um, and he, I'll name him, it's Patrick. Hello Patrick, if you're listening. And then he sent me this really fascinating thing where he was saying like, I've been you know really influenced by Michaela right and the knowledge of the, the the power of culture was it their recent book and the tiger teachers and and he was saying like Michaela's really impressive they're achieving these incredible results and it's like a, a far far extreme right you know Catherine Burbelsing is often described as the, the strictest head teacher in the country and so on. But then you know SMLC in coming in cunningham's like alternative school where you know the young people are free to do whatever they want you know it's not only are there no silent corridors there are no corridors you know there are no injunctions other than sort of generally agreed upon values and the children the young people rather are very much involved in shaping those values and how that democratic education community works and he was fascinated by this he's like how can this be how can smlc work and Michaela work how what is going on here and then he was recognizing that actually there's some common ground here that both places put lots of emphasis on you know respect respecting one another respecting the building and its contents and so on um and that there's you know high levels of buy in from staff And then he was talking about how we could actually incorporate these two very different ways into one organization so that you could have, you know, a a sort of a a tight but loose timetable where you've got, you know, some taught stuff, some stage not age stuff, some stuff that's, you know, taught with a very strong knowledge-rich curriculum, but you've also got like elements of self-managed learning scattered throughout the day. And you know, I'm really encouraged by the fact that people are willing to have these conversations and are already at the point of like drawing up school timetables, right? Like, like what would this actually look like in reality? And that's what, well, I, I would really like to do with this, with this podcast, is to sort of to grow a community. And I've got an idea that I'll, uh, I want to talk to you about first, but um, I'll maybe announce it in a forthcoming episode. An idea for how we can actually start to to grow a community of people who are interested in having these conversations. And it's not just shooting the breeze and having some armchair debate like, you know, people might have done for the last 20 years about Ken Robinson's ideas, but actually let's start talking about like the the nitty gritty and the implementation of these ideas. Like what would it take to translate this vision into reality so that we can have something that more closely resembles reality, right? Which is this more divergent, flexible, responsive education system that just seems like it's so urgently needed
0: i would love to be in that conversation i remember it was years ago and i was teaching almost all year seven and i taught learning skills with you and i taught english taught french spanish and pe and i was running down a corridor between a spanish lesson and a pe lesson i think and i was just like this is ridiculous why is it carved up like this Why is it chopped up into five separate ideas that run back to back, that don't bleed into one another, that don't even make sense next door to one another? This is like really schizophrenic and it's tiring me out. Like I have to get my teacher mindset from Spanish grammar into like year seven boys football rules. And that's really hard to do. And this must be really painful for children. Like, I wonder if we didn't do it like this, how how would we do it? And that's the question that I want to ask. Well, if it wasn't like this, how could it be? And And then figuring out, like you say, so it's not an armchair exercise. That's the bit I'm interested in. That's why I sold my house and traveled halfway across the world. I discovered the world schooling community. I was like, oh, hang on a minute. These are parents with children and housing to pay for and food to pay for and responsibilities that that they have to um, undertake and yet they are traveling with their children they feel free they feel accomplished they feel purposeful they feel wholehearted they're making it work right they're living the dream how how are they doing that what are they like, what are the nuts and bolts? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? How much does it cost? How much of this do you have to do? How much of that do you have to do? That's what fascinates me. what How do you blend the recipe that's right for each person? And I think that we can do that with whole education systems as well. I don't see any reason why you can't. Um, so yeah, count me in. I'd happily join that gang.
1: Now the invite is in the post. I mean, it's such an exciting p- point in time. I feel incredibly um, privileged and proud to know you and to um, to to be in you know ongoing conversation with you, especially at this point in time as you are about to embark on this incredible next chapter the the actual real young people are coming to this building that you've um procured um in a short space of time um and they've got you know very real ideas of their own and their parents have got their own ideas about how they want this all to work and I'm absolutely fascinated to see how this will play out um and I'm sure that you'll be back on the show before long to uh, to share your uh adventures so um as a final question is there anything that you would like to um to add to what we've already talked about or to say or to ask for anybody out there um to um you know, share their ideas? Is there any way that people can get involved or find out more about Hive schooling? And what's your vision for the future of Hive schooling as well?
0: Um, I would like, I would love for there to be lots of Hive schools dotted around the place um, that each have their own, very much their own personality, but a shared DNA, if you like, a shared value system of, building things with people, not for people um, of safety, belonging, purpose. Um, That's really important to me that these are places where you can go to heal and to grow and to learn and to, for teachers and, and students. Um, So I would love, I would love for there to be lots of them that all look different, but all feel the same. I think that's, that's what I would love Hive Schools to become. And the Human Hive is, is quite a big organization now. We have um, people working in all different... The idea is really is to make the journey through life smoother, to give people the knowledge, the skills, and the relationships they need to, to, to design and travel their own path through life. So we work with employers and we work with universities and schools and volunteers who are out in the community. And it's all really about developing a shared way of being, of moving from self-awareness through to self-determination via self-regulation and learning how to express yourself and becoming more self-reflective and self-directed. And, and there's, It's a cycle that you can go through every day, just noticing yourself and noticing how you are responding to what's around you and then choosing an action that's going to get you closer to how you want to feel and where you want to be. And so if anyone is interested in getting involved in more of that, then um, we have a mighty network called The Human Hive. And it's free and you can join. And then you can meet other people who are figuring out how to make life feel a bit more smooth and a bit more connected together that's what we're doing
1: so for anybody who's listening who um is currently thinking uh, I would quite like the idea of, of setting up a hive school somewhere in some tropical paradise or maybe not a tropical paradise, somewhere in the world or in, you know, their local community. The first step, it might seem like it's a long, they're a long way. You know, at the moment we're in, you know, January, it's grey and it's raining a lot. <laughs> and We're in the middle of this pandemic, right? It seems like we, people might feel like they're a long way away from, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to open up a a groovy, you know, um, self-regulating school. Um, So as a first step, do you think that that's a sensible first step to um, join the Mighty Network uh, for Hive Schools, or the the Human Hive? The Human Hive,
0: yeah.
1: Meet with some like-minded people.
0: Come in and find that safe space to spitball some ideas and talk about what you'd like to achieve and see if you can find someone who will help you to get closer to achieving it. It's a journey. I, there is no part of seven-year-old Kate McAllister who was standing facing a wall because she didn't know how to eat properly, um, who thought that she would end up here. Just, there's no part. Um, and now I mostly feel calm and I mostly feel peaceful and I'm mostly surrounded by people who make me feel good about myself. And that's, not been a short journey. It's taken some really interesting twists and turns, um, and it's a journey that everybody can not to hear necessarily, but people can make their own journey to where to somewhere where they feel safe and that they feel that they belong and they feel that they they have meaning in their life and that they're doing something purposeful. Um, and so the human hive is somewhere that you can come and just figure out what that journey is for you. Um well, at least that's what we want it to be. so the more people who come and join um the the more they will they will shape how helpful it is to others. That's how it works it's a hive, right everybody brings a little bit of themselves to it, and we we work together to make stuff that we can all share
1: well. Thank you very much for sharing your uh, incredibly precious time. I know that you're in the thick of uh, preparing for this school opening, so I should let you get back to it. Thank you for um, sharing your time with me. I really uh, enjoyed talking with you.
0: Thank you for sharing your time with me and for having been um, my friend and colleague for many years, for having challenged my um, thinking all along the way. and. Um, for inviting me in to your world of academia and super braininess and um i always appreciated our conversations about education and i still do so thank you for having me on
1: absolute pleasure and that just makes me remember that somebody requested a listener requested that in a previous podcast where we were talking about about um the learning skills curriculum that we talked about where we differ um, and there are there is an interesting conversation to be had there, but I think that we've probably missed our opportunity in this conversation, so that'll have to wait until the next time you come on.
0: Okay, I'll happily have that conversation with you.
1: <laughs> Times a measure of change. We don't have much to... time is a measure of change.